This morning we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. And we'll be looking at three parts of this passage. First is sincere love. Second is being born again to the imperishable. And third is the eternal word of God. And all of these things are proclaimed at the very end of this chapter to be good news preached to you. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is a, is a broad thing. There's much to be learned about the things of God and they are all good news to our hearts. So let's stand together and honor the Lord as we read his word this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 22 through 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, Peter begins with a statement, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. Purified your soul by obedience to the truth. When I read that, it, it kind of takes me back because I would expect it to say obedience because of a purified soul. So when we see something that doesn't quite seem like what we would think it would be, we need to go and, and examine it, figure out what's going on here, what is Peter speaking about, because the scriptures are very clear that we are not uh, saved or made righteous by our works, but we are made righteous by the grace of God through faith. And so let's look briefly again at the, the steps and the progression of salvation. We've been doing this for some time because Peter keeps bringing it up in this chapter, this progression of election and gospel call and preaching, regeneration, conversion, repentance and faith, which is that conversion, justification, being declared not guilty, adoption, being brought into the family of God, sanctification, the right conduct of the Christian life, perseverance or remaining a Christian, then death, and then glorification or receiving a resurrection body, which we're going to also talk about today. In this progression of our salvation, this rich progression, I believe that what uh, Peter is speaking about here is the process of sanctification. He's coming right off the tail end of speaking about holiness and obedience related to holiness. And certainly in sanctification, that cooperative work between the Holy Spirit and us, that which is begun by the Spirit and sustained by the Spirit, but which we definitely have a cooperative part in striving toward holiness through obedience, in that understanding of sanctification, surely our souls are purified by obedience. We start as a terrible, wretched sinner. And when we come to Christ Jesus and we seek to follow after him and live for him, as we walk in holiness and obedience, our life is surely purified. And when we go many years down the road in walking and living for Christ, we can see how different we, we are now than we were then. And the way that we speak and the way that we treat other people and the way that we live our lives it, our life has been purified through obedience unto Christ Jesus. 
Holiness is a very serious call in the Christian life. It's something that we've spoken about for a couple of weeks in a row, so I'm not going to dwell there on that. But our obedience has a purifying effect on our life as we follow after Christ and his work continues in our salvation. But this path of obedience leads every true Christian into the path of love. We talk about this all the time in this church because it's such a central and absolutely necessary virtue in the Christian life. And Peter spends some time camping out here and gives us a wonderful fourfold definition of what it means to walk in Christian love. For every true Christian will walk in this first virtue of the Holy Spirit, which is love. And it will be love for both God and for our fellow man. And so the four aspects or the four descriptions of love that Peter gives here is that it is a sincere love, a brotherly love, an earnest love, and love from a pure heart. This is a very special passage, one that I hope you'll underline if you underline things in your Bible, because this is what we are striving for as Christians with those that are around us. First, that our love for them be sincere. What does it mean for something to be sincere? Uh, I believe that it means that it is true, it is authentic, it is real. We used to sign letters sincerely. It means I really mean what I said in this letter. I'm, I'm actually, uh, I mean what I'm saying here. My words are true to you. My words to you are not fake. My words to you are not plastic. I am not saying things only because I needed to say something to you or I felt like I had to say it, but I am sincere in the way that I love and I care for you. It's from the heart. So we should be sincere in our Christian love towards each other. We should be brotherly. Brotherly is an interesting term as I was thinking about this because brotherly, I think what we know that it means, it's a positive connotation. That it's something of loyalty with when brothers or sisters bond together. It's something of enduring patience. It's something that, that speaks to a bond of hope through friendship. When you have great brotherhood, it's a sense of, of nearness to other people that you endure together and you go through struggles together and you care for each other and you have a comfort level with each other. You can put your feet up together and, and live truly together. This is a sense of brotherly love. But unfortunately, we don't see this often in families. So often, brothers war against each other in families, and they struggle against each other. And there's not the ideal of what we see here of brotherly love in the scriptures. And that shouldn't surprise us, because this world is a sinful world. And we're not guaranteed to all come to salvation together as a family. What we ought to find is the ideal of this, and this is certainly what I have found, the ideal of brotherly love being found in this place, in the church. The brothers that I have found in Christ in the church are the nearest brothers to me, and they uphold this ideal of loyalty and enduring patience and a bond of hope and friendship and comfort. And the men of this church, the brothers that I have found in Christ are my nearest and dearest brothers. And this is the way that it ought to be, uh, as we see here in the scriptures. That our love for one another ought to be sincere. It ought to be brotherly in its warmth and its kindness. That our love for one another ought to be earnest. 
So earnest and sincere are somewhat synonyms. They're both true, they're both heartfelt, they're both passionate, but I believe that earnest has an active tone to it. If you are earnest in the way that you care about another person, your actions towards them will not be only in words. You can't just say things that you sincerely mean, but if you are earnest in your love for someone, you will be there to help them and to come alongside them, and you will do something for that person because of your care and your love for them. And certainly, as Christians, our love for one another ought not to be only in word, but also in deed, that we see a need, and then we go meet a need, and our love for a person is earnest. Fourthly, our Christian love for one another ought to be of a pure heart, a pure heart, meaning that our motives are pure, that they are related to the good of the other person, that we are never saying things or doing things to others in order to manipulate them or to use them or some way in which we're doing something for them only because it produces a good for us. This is not a love from a pure heart. This is something that is manipulative and of the world. We see it all the time where people will do things for another person so that that person will do something for them. And if they do something for that person and they don't do something in return, then their love for that person is cut off. They're dead to them. This is a conditional love. The love of a Christian should be unconditional from a pure heart, truly meaning well to the other person. After we come to salvation, the first fruit of God's Holy Spirit is love. And the Holy Spirit is the one who takes us from where we used to be to where we ought to be in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us to be sincere, to be brotherly, to be earnest, to be pure in the way that we care for other people, and that we might go away from the way that we used to be into something that is like Christ. And we're given many commands about this in the scriptures. We have this one recorded over here because it's so central to us in this church, John 13, 35. A command given by Jesus to love one another and that we will be known as followers of Christ primarily by the way that we authentically love one another. Because the world can say words and can write things, but the world does not authentically love other people. They don't do it. They can't do it because they don't have the Holy Spirit of God at work in their heart. And so something radically different should be happening in the church. Because the one another part of this, you will love one another. When Jesus said these words here, he was speaking to the disciples at the Last Supper. He was not speaking to a general audience of everybody ought to just love everybody. It was the church that the people that are in Christ ought to love one another in these ways that we're being commanded this morning. And so I want to urge you and speak to different categories of the church this morning that we might put a focus on what it means to obey this command of Christ and then re-emphasized here by Peter that we love one another. First to the adults of the church, the brotherly kindness of dropping false pretense and really entering into each other's lives. Uh, Often, a church can become something where you come in and you put on a plastic smile and you say certain things that you know you ought to say and you dress in a certain way that you feel like you ought to dress and you come in and you do your thing and then you go back out. And there's no real 
brotherly interaction. There's no real entering into another person's life because that person may have offended you or you forgot the person's name and you're embarrassed to ask the person's name or really you're just too busy to care about anybody in this place because you've got all these pursuits in the world that you have to get after to such an extent that you really just don't have time for anything else because you've got to get hold of the things of this world. This is not what we are to be about as Christians. We ought to earnestly and sincerely love one another. This church is getting larger, and I know you can't know everybody here, but you can know some of the people here. And you can always have an open space in the circle of your friends to bring another person into that friendship and to care about that person that's standing in the corner that nobody's talking to and that you go and you notice them because you care, because of the sake of Christ, you want to see that person find Christ Jesus and enter into the community of the church. It is a striving to be unified through forgiveness, through acts of service, through memories created together, through serving and through living together. We have a, a deacon service project coming up on the 17th. And I tell you, there's no better way to enjoy the company of others than by serving together with them in some meaningful way. And I would say something about love and manliness this morning. I'm glad we have a lot of manly men in this church. And sometimes men think that love and manliness don't go together. But that's not true. If you're a manly man and you have no love in your heart, you're a cold, dead man. And it's not a good thing. A coldness of heart will do nothing to grow your family or endear your wife to you. You have to learn to be strong and kind and tender. And both of those things can go together. There is a way for those things to go together. If you are a strong man this morning and you've been neglecting love in your life, you need to go back and understand that it's a thing of godliness, not a thing of weakness. Ask God to help you in that area. When we go to adults, I'm sorry, to youth next, and looking at sincere, brotherly, earnest, pure love, it is so important that young people, you and the youth group and the young adult group, that your lives are marked by these things. The world is not marked by these things. And we all know that junior high and high school can be rough times, times marked by uh, pride and cliques and exclusions and judging and all kinds of things. With all the social media out there today, it's worse than it ever was, it seems. And so the tone of our youth group will not just be set by its leaders. Its tone will be set by you young people and the way that you choose to love each other. And I want to impress you and encourage you to do away with factions and cliques and making fun of the newcomer. I remember distinctly one of our boys coming into a youth group one time. And as soon as we walked through the door, someone turned around. It was Will, who used to lead worship in this church and now has moved to Lynchburg. He came right up to one of our boys and before we could even get through the door and stuck his hand out and welcomed us and said, thanks, come on into youth group, sit next to me. I mean, it was unbelievable. I, I'd never seen anything like that. It was true Christian love. Let not gossip have a place in the youth group. Speak well of each other. Don't speak ill against someone unless you absolutely have to for some true Christian purpose that is helping them. Speak well of each other. Love each other. May the youth group be known as a place of the work of God's Spirit. And then we go to children. Children, loving the Lord God. 
The first thing is that you come to love Christ as your Savior. I want to appeal to you children to come and believe in Christ as your Savior, that you might know him, and that through knowing him, you might know the love of his Spirit. And that as you come to learn more of the love of Christ, that each of you children would love your parents, that you would speak to them of love, that you would love your grandparents, that you would show affection to them, and that you would love your brothers and sisters, and that as a child you would be known as a Christian young man or young woman, and that the way that you live would be marked by Christian love towards your parents, towards your grandparents, and towards your brothers and your sisters. So this is something about us loving each other in the church. But there is a second command about loving people in the Bible. It is the second of the greatest commandments, to love your neighbor as yourself. This love is to go well beyond the bounds of this church. It begins in the community of the church, and it radiates from the community of the church, but it goes out to all those that are strangers that we live around, those that are literally next door to us, to those that are next to, the, next to us in the cubicle or, or work and, uh, next to us in the gym, whatever it may be. That this neighbor, for Jesus' sake, we love those who are around us, even, and I would say especially, our enemies. Because we are known as Christians to be able to love people in a way that the world does not. And that our love for the world and our neighbor ought to be marked by the things that Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. There should be something of kindness in our life. We should not be a short-tempered, angry person. Love does not insist on its own way. As Christians, we are looking to hear others and observe others and realize that our way of doing things is not always the best way of doing things because there's a lot of smart, good people in this world and we should respect others and hear what they have to say and earnestly uh, give way to them in many times. That we should not be irritable, which means we're not on edge all the time, that our heart is at peace in Christ Jesus bearing all things, hoping all things. Bearing all things has to do with loyalty. It has to do with sticking with someone, that when they offend you, that you are willing to forgive them and remain with them. The way of the world is that when someone offends you, you cut them off and put them away from you. And there's a long list of people that you've run over and that you're not willing to talk to anymore. But not so with the Christian. We bear all things and we hope all things. We have a hopeful life in Christ. That God in Christ Jesus is taking things to a good and beautiful end according to his will. And so I would ask you this morning, according to this command of Peter, are these ways that describe your life? If someone asked someone else near to you, is this person a loving Christian person? What would they say about your life? Is there something that evidences the love of Christ in obedience to this good command in the way that you live your life? Well, we live this way because of certain things that have happened. And that's where Peter goes next in verse 23. We live this way because we have been born again. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. We talked some weeks ago at length about being born again. It's a central Bible concept. It's an analogy as to what has happened to us in the Christian life. 
And this new life that has come to us in Christ Jesus is not something that is perishable. It's not something of this world that's going to pass away. The new life that we have in Christ is something that is imperishable. Those in Christ that are born unto spiritual life by God, responding to this in repentance and faith, this is no small change. This is a complete change in the character of a person. A person that is truly born again in Christ is not just a little bit different in the way that they act and live. They become radically, completely, and in glory totally different than they are now in their character, passing from death unto life. Imperishable is an interesting description. To be imperishable is something that is unshaken, unfading, something that's heavenly, something that's eternal, something that's glorious. And it's heavenly because there's nothing in this world that is imperishable. Everything in this physical world is perishable. It rusts, it grinds down, it fades away in beauty. And we're going to get into more of this. But I want to read, and I would ask for you to turn with me. You can keep your finger here in 1 Peter. But turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 49. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 35 through 49, Paul writes at length about this specific idea of the Christian in salvation, passing from the perishable to the imperishable, from death unto life. And Paul is just beautiful in the way that he reads this, or writes about this. We read this often at funerals because it's so encouraging, but it's important that we look at that on a Sunday morning so we can get more into this. I'll read 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. Verse 42, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as it is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. All right, there's a lot said there. Let's dive in and go back through that and make some sense of it because it's very important. Verses 35 through 41, he brings this constant contrast, or it begins the contrast, I should say, between different types of bodies. 
So he talks about bodies of human beings, bodies of animals, birds, fish. The scriptural difference between these two things is that human beings are created in the image of God. We see this from the very beginning of Genesis, that there's something radically different about men and women, human beings, that we are created with a soul. And because we are created in the image of God with a soul, we have the opportunity to have a relationship with God through Christ Jesus. This is something different than the animals and the birds and the fish. They are not created created in the image of God. They have a certain glory. If you've ever pulled a tropical fish out and it's got 17 different colors on it and it's just like a work of art you just pulled out of the water, there's glory to that. There's glory to the beauty of different animals that are all part of the artistic wonder of God. But not a single one of them will you ever see kneeling down to pray. And not a single one of them will you ever hear singing worship to the Lord God as we just sang here this morning because they have no awareness of God. They have no ability to have a relationship with God. And so there are different bodies. There's different glory. He gets into some of the celestial things, sun, moon, and stars, but all of them are not eternal. Verses 42 through 44, he relates it to the resurrection of the dead. And he gets into this back and forth between the way that we begin and the way that we will end in Christ. So in Christ, we begin perishable. As a natural person that will live a life and then die and be buried in the ground. But in Christ, we will be raised imperishable. There is something that changes about us in Christ. We begin in dishonor, we will be raised in glory. We begin in weakness, we will be raised in power. We begin with a natural body, but we will be raised with a spiritual body like unto the resurrection body of Christ Jesus our Lord. The spiritual new birth of the soul will one day reach a full completion in resurrection to eternal glory and the physical becoming spiritual. In verses 45 through 49, we have this first Adam, second Adam language. First Adam is the first Adam, the first man made of dust, as it says. We don't often think of ourselves like that, but the next time you're wiping dust off the top of your TV or something, think that's what you're made out of, and that's what you're going to go back to one day, and that there's really nothing important about you. That's what God sees you as. That's why in the old book of common prayer, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We came from dust, and we will return to dust. Adam is a man of dust. But the second Adam is referring to Jesus Christ, a new man come upon the scene with no sin in his soul, for he is conceived in a way that is of the Holy Spirit. And where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. And where Adam led us down in every possible way, Christ hope, we hope in Christ, for he succeeds in every possible way. And so the second Adam, there's this contrast then between the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam was alive, but the second Adam is life-giving. The first Adam was before, the second is after. So this is constant perishable to imperishable. The first Adam was of dust, but the second Adam is from heaven. We are people of dust, but those that are of heaven are of a different quality. And the whole purpose of this is that the new birth in Christ that begins in our soul will by the power of God work its way out even into our body such that there is resurrection from the dead. I don't know if you think about this much. 
I was just reading through the tail end of the book of Acts recently, and it just jumped out to me that what Paul kept arguing all the way from Jerusalem to Rome was the resurrection of the dead. This working out of new birth into its final end, which is heavenly glory and eternal life. In Christ, and only in Christ, will we ever make the jump from the perishable to the imperishable. There's nothing in this world that is imperishable. But when we are born again, as it says in 1 Peter 1.23, we are born again to the imperishable. Seeking after eternal life, the heavenly, knowing all that is in this life will fade, but not the will of the Lord. The final part of this passage has to do just a beautiful quotation from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 46 through 8 is where this comes from. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass, and the the grass withers and the flower falls. It's a statement of the perishableness of humanity and how quickly each of our lives will pass like a vapor. And with the dust that we came from, the dust that we will return to, It is another contrast between the perishable and then the imperishable nature of God's word. All flesh is like grass, withers and falls. One of my favorite places in all the world is the Pacific Northwest and the Rocky Mountains there. We love to go. We've gone a couple times to Glacier National Park. And when you get out of those fields of grass and the flowers, the mountain flowers in full bloom, all kinds of different things, it just looks like a the most beautiful painting you've ever seen in your life, all of it created by God. But you have to hit it on the third week of July. If you want to see it, you can come on the third week of July and you can see it all. But if you wait too much longer after that or much before that, you're going to see a snow patch or, or just green grass. But if you hit it just right, it's glorious. Same with the leaves here in the Shenandoah Valley. You come beforehand, just green. You come after it, it's a bunch of empty trees a bunch of brown, dead, dead, crumply stuff that's not pretty at all. But if you hit it just right, it's gorgeous. It's the perishable nature of this world. But it's not so with the glory of Christ. His glory is imperishable, a beauty that will not fade. And one of the beautiful, amazing pictures of heaven is the tree of life. And it bears fruit in what season? In heaven. Every season. There's a fruit for every season in heaven. That's amazing. There is no tree in this world that bears fruit in every season. But in heaven, it will be so. It's sad to see people in this world struggling so much to retain their youth and to hang on to that which is perishable. We lived in Miami for a while, and it was just a weird place, folks. A sad place. Uh, You laugh. Millions of people live there. And that place was marked by plastic surgery and a seeking to hang on to that which is perishable. And I'll tell you, until it it gets grotesque and and just, like, what is happening here? Like, people cannot grasp and they refuse to believe that they're going to die, and they just can't do it. And so they do all kinds of strange things to try to hold on to that which cannot be held on to. But there is only one way to overcome the perishable human condition, and that is to enter into the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. By coming to faith and repentance in Jesus, believing in him. For in John chapter 18, there's a very interesting passage. Jesus is before Pilate, 
And Pilate is asking him whether he was a king or not. And this is what Jesus says. He says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? What an interesting question. It's a question that was asked before him, is asked now, and will continue to be asked. What is truth? What is real? What is authentic? What will not fade away in this world? And what we are told so clearly by Peter is that the word of the Lord is that which will remain forever. That is the truth. Christ Jesus prayed for his disciples, and he said, Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. The word of the Lord, which is recorded for us, words from the past, words that were spoken by the prophets, the deeds of God in the world, all kinds of things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, written down without error in Scripture, that we might read these things and understand who God is, that we might understand the way of salvation, that we might hear this good news that comes to us from Scripture. It is something that is living and active, something that affects our hearts, something that separates truth from lie, something that convicts us of sin and makes us know the way of the Lord, and it is something that will remain forever. It will not pass away. And so I ask you, because there are many people that have uh, closed the scriptures, tried to get rid of the scriptures, questioned the scriptures in every way, and yet they remain, and yet they are still here and so people struggle with this question of truth. What is perishable? What can I trust? What is authentic? What is not authentic? Especially in the media world that we live in now. Some people have given up hope ever knowing what is fact from fiction, what is right from wrong, what is true, what is not true, because everything is so shot through with lies. I put to you this morning that the word of God is true and that it will remain forever. When every fad of this day and age has passed away, the word of the Lord will continue to stand. And so I encourage you, and I press you to make time to have devotions every day. Make time every day to open the scriptures and ask God to speak to you from his word. And take time to read it. God will use his word in your heart in a way that nothing else in this world will be used to help you understand who God is and what his will is. And he will change your heart by it. He will refine your heart by it. And it will remain and you can stand upon it. Make time to put aside the things of this world to enter in to God's word. For the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the church that you have gathered here today. We praise you for the way in which you love us unconditionally and for the spirit that you put into our hearts. And I pray, God, that you would teach us richly of what it means to love one another, adult, youth, and child. I pray that our hearts would be set upon the imperishable things of heaven. I pray, God, that we would love not this world nor the things of this world, but that we would long to look into what it is that we shall one day become in glory. And I pray, Father, that our feet would be set firmly upon the truth of your word, that as the world swirls around us and things come and things go, that we would seek after that which is imperishable and true, which is the word of the Lord. Help us in these things this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.